0: If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Revelation 19. We're going to pick up where we left off several weeks ago as we were preaching through the book of Revelation. We covered the first half of chapter 19, and now we find ourselves concluding the second half, which will then usher us into the seventh and final cycle of the book, which begins in chapter 20. But we are looking at chapter 19, verses 11 through 21 this evening. And I'm going to read those verses to you. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. And so may we receive it from him with joy and gladness. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of Of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Beloved of God, the word of the Lord is full of wondrous things. So let's ask him this evening to open our eyes that we might behold them together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we confess that far too often our souls cling to the dust, to the things of this world. And so we pray For the sake of Jesus, your Son, our Lord and Savior, that you would give us life according to your word. May you send your Spirit to make us understand the way of your precepts, that we might meditate on your wondrous works. Enlarge our hearts, O Lord, that we might run in the way of your commandments and cling to your testimonies. And give us a glimpse this evening, we pray, of the glories of the King of kings and Lord of lords. For he is our blessed hope, and we have loved his appearing. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I am doubt I'm alone in this, but growing up, some of my favorite childhood stories were from Robin Hood. I think I had the Howard Pyle version read to me. And it's not just because it was such a such swashbuckling stories, it's not because of the sword play or the romance or ultimately the triumph at the end, although all those things factored in. I ultimately think what drew me to the story of Robin Hood and why it, it endures is because Robin Hood was loyal to his king. You remember the story that... Richard the Lionhearted is out fighting the Crusades. He's the rightful king of England. And yet while he's gone, defending his kingdom, protecting his people, the sleazy Prince John rises up and usurps the throne and oppresses those who rightfully should be under the reign of King Richard. And so Robin Hood is, is loyal to King Richard while he's gone. And so he causes no end of trouble to Prince John. And we remember that wonderful scene where Richard comes back and he's in disguise, he's in a cloak, and he's seeing how Robin is being loyal and faithful to him. And then he reveals his true identity, Richard does, and Robin Hood falls to his knees and says, my lord and my liege. And you may wonder why I start out with that. Brothers and sisters, we're in the same situation as Robin Hood. Our king, And his kingdom is not apparent to our enemies and to the unbelievers around us. And so they oppress us, and they mock us, and they laugh at us. And yet God has called us, while Christ is gone, preparing a place for us to remain faithful to him. To remain loyal to him. And one of the means that the Spirit uses to foster and nurture and create that faithfulness and endurance in us is by beholding the glory of our King as it's revealed to us in the Word. And so that's what we're going to behold this evening. We're going to behold the glory of our King Jesus to the end that the Spirit would use it so we would be faithful, knowing that he is coming back. He will return in victory. And so we ought to wait for him. And so those are the two realities that we're going to look at this evening in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. First of all, we're going to look at the glory of our king as John just rolls it out before us in verses 11 through 16. We're going to revel in that together. That's going to be the bulk of the sermon. And then secondly, we're going to look at the victory of our king in verses 17 through 21. We're going to see that victory is certain, and then we're going to see how he actually executes that victory upon his enemies. And brothers and sisters, again, my hope and prayer is that the Lord would use his word by the Spirit as we behold the glory of our King to be ever faithful to him until the day that he returns or until the day that we breathe our last. So let's look first then at the glory of our king in verses 11 through 16. And the first thing that we're going to notice in verses 11, 12, and 13 is that John actually gives us seven descriptions of Jesus as the promised warrior king. Yes, we see the number absolutely The number seven everywhere in the book of Revelation. And so here we see it again. And so we're going to walk through each of these very quickly. We're not going to be able to meditate on them as long as I would like us to. But we're going to look at them. And so let's look first then at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges And makes war. Now, the first thing that we notice is that this horse and his rider are coming out of heaven. They've been sent by God to do the work that they are about to do. And though this isn't one of the the seven descriptions, we notice that Christ is on a white horse. And this is imagery that endures even in our culture, doesn't it? We know that the victor, the conqueror, in a movie or in a story or whatever, is often. Riding upon a white horse. At the very least, we know that he's the good guy. And at least back in the day in the good old movies, the good guy used to win. And so we see that 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 imagery is enduring. But in the ancient world, the king would be on a white conquering horse. Sometimes there's even records of the king riding into battle on his war horse that was one color. And then after the victory was secured, he would actually switch over to a white horse. To add to the poppin circumstance of overcoming one's enemy. And so right out of the gate, we see John signaling to us through this vision and through this symbolism, Jesus has come to conquer. But the first of the seven descriptions that we see is that he is called faithful and true. He is faithful and true. And what John is showing to us here is he's wanting to allude to all the warrior kings that we're aware of in the Old Testament. And he's saying Jesus is that warrior king par excellence. He is the greatest of the warrior kings. They were all type and shadows. Jesus is the ultimate reality. And so we can think of various examples in the Old Testament. We've been going through the book of Genesis in the morning worship together, and we saw what a conquering warrior king that even Abraham was. Or, you know, kids, probably the first one that you think of when you hear of a strong warrior king is maybe Samson. He was a judge and not a king, but still the same idea. Or we might even think of King David and his mighty men. He was a great warrior king as well. But here's the thing, even as I mention those examples to you, And even as God used them mightily in his kingdom, we know that they were not perfectly faithful and true warrior kings. They all sinned and fell short of the glory of God in various ways. And we can see that very easily in the narrative. And yet Jesus is perfectly faithful and true. As the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of what the Messiah would be as a warrior king. And so John's saying, here he is in all of his glory. The next description that we see, again in verse 11, is that Jesus judges and makes war in righteousness. We are aware of many judges throughout history, and even the best of them that try to judge justly and use the power that God has given them, because of their limitations and their fallenness, and there are really, really corrupt judges, we know that judges don't always do so in righteousness, do they? And we know that that not all wars that are declared are just wars. They're not carried out in righteousness. They're not begun in justice, and they're not carried out in justice. And yet, in contradistinction to all of that, here we have Jesus. Right? And John has already told us in his gospel that all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son. And he will carry out that judgment and then execute that judgment in absolute righteousness and justice. Why? Because as God, he is justice itself. And so here we have the glory of our king just being put on full display before us. He is faithful and true. He is the judge who makes war in righteousness. And then we get the next three descriptions of Jesus as this warrior king in verse 12. So look there with me. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one Knows but himself. So here in verse twelve, we're given three more descriptions of Jesus. The third one that we find here is that Jesus's eyes are like a flame of fire. And hopefully, that's not a new concept to you. We've already seen John describe Jesus this way back in Revelation one verse fourteen and chapter two verse eighteen. And even when we looked at it there, we saw that this was a clear reference back to Daniel chapter ten and verse six. Where Daniel sees a vision of this heavenly being, and he has eyes that are like a flame of fire. And what we're being told here, what we're being shown, is that Jesus is a just judge because he has all the information that he needs in order to make these just judgments. As God, good earthly judges sometimes make bad judgments because they don't have all the information And Jesus has all the information he needs. As God, he knows all things. And so his eyes see and they test the children of man. And so this draws us to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, where we read of Jesus that the word of God, who is Jesus, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is our king in all his glory. This is the judge of all mankind. The fourth description that we see that John gives us here, is that Jesus has upon his head many diadems. And characters in the book of Revelation having crowns on their heads is nothing new to us. We've seen this before. You remember in chapter 12, the dragon had seven crowns on his head. And then in chapter 13, the beast has ten. And so they had some sort of authority. They had some sort of power that was given to them. But how many crowns does Jesus have on his head? Jesus has many. There's not a specific number that's given, but the image that's, that's given to us is that there are numerous, too many to count, crowns on his head. And so what's being communicated to us is the absolute authority of Jesus as the warrior king. These beasts, the dragon, and, and other rulers may have one crown because they have authority over one nation, or one people group. But Jesus, as it were, has them all. And so his kingship and his authority and his sovereignty is absolute. Isn't this what he says, by the way, in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we're being shown that he has absolute authority. And here's the incredible thing, brothers and sisters. Because Jesus has those crowns, because Jesus conquered In his earthly ministry as the second Adam, he promises us, you remember how many times this came up in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that as he sustains us and we conquer and endure in the face of our enemies, he says that I will give you a crown. You will share in my glory. He says in Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And what's incredible is that Jesus graciously, lovingly, kindly wraps us up in his glory, and we're able to participate in that, which is absolutely incredible. The fifth description that we see is that he has a name this is at the very end of verse 12, written that no one knows but himself. Seems kind of mysterious, right? Well, it's intentionally supposed to be mysterious because only Jesus knows what this name is. And so what is John communicating to us? He's communicating to us that there are things we know about Jesus that have been revealed to us. We know things about the Son of God because he's made them known to us. But as God brothers and sisters. We do not know him comprehensively. We know him truly, but we don't know him as he knows himself. And so there's a name written that only he knows. There's only knowledge of himself that he has, that the Godhead has, that is not accessible to us because we are finite. And so again, John is just heaping up descriptions of the glory of Jesus that are meant to capture our hearts he gives us two more descriptions in verse 13 so look there with me he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God so the sixth description here is that he has clothes that are dipped in blood And you go, well, what is that all about? That's kind of weird. Well, this is a very, very clear reference back to a prophecy in the book of Isaiah found in chapter 63. You don't have to turn there. I encourage you to write it down and look at it later. But I'm going to read it to you, Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4, just so you can see how clearly John is picking up this language. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. By the way, in this passage, there's like a call and response. So there's the question. Now here's the response. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And now here's another question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And then here's the final response. I have trodden the winepress press alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. So here's this divine warrior who is going to come prophesied by Isaiah, stomping on his enemies to such an extent that their blood splatters on his robe, and it just has made it crimson. And what John is saying is Jesus is that divine warrior that Isaiah promised. And here's the incredible thing that we need to reflect on, brothers and sisters. The incredible difference in Jesus' first and second coming In how he will conquer his enemies. Because how did Jesus conquer his enemies the first time he came? He didn't come shedding their blood. No, he came shedding his blood for his enemies. Who were those enemies? You and me. He shed his blood for us. The wrath that we deserved for our sin against God. Jesus experienced that. His blood was shed for us so that our sins are forgiven. But here's the thing. The second time he comes... He comes to conquer his enemies, not by shedding his blood again. That's completely unnecessary. He comes to shed instead the blood of those who would rebel and stand against them. He will take no prisoners. They will all be cut down. Which is why it's so important that each and every one of us here this evening know where we stand with him. Because the reality is, we either stand covered by his blood and justified in God's sight, or at the end of all things, our blood will be shed by him, by the just and righteous judge and warrior king who is over all. And this is also, by the way, why it's so urgent for us to be proclaiming the gospel to those who do not know Christ, that they might be reconciled to him. Otherwise, this is what awaits them. And then the seventh and final description that John gives us in these first three verses is that Jesus is called the Word of God. You see that there at the end of verse 13. And what John is alluding to is two realities. First of all, we know that he's called the Word of God because Jesus is the Word of God. He is the only begotten of the Father who is eternally begotten of the Father, the one through whom all things were created. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so John is relaying that to us. And he's also saying that there's a second sense in which Jesus is the Word of God, in that all of the promises, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, find their yes. And amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of the prophecies that talk about in the Old Testament about a divine warrior king who would crush his enemies, they are all fulfilled in Jesus at his second coming. Now here's the thing. John doesn't just stack up all of these descriptions to show us Jesus's glory. He also shows us Jesus's glory as this warrior king by showing us who it is that actually fights alongside of him. And we see who they are in verse 14. Look there with me. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, there's been a lot of debate amongst commentators as to who these folks on white horses with white linen robes are. And some commentators want to say that they're just angels or they're angels and they're the glorified saints. And I just think they're the glorified saints for the simple reason that we see throughout the book of Revelation again and again, the people of God are promised, I will give you these white robes if you conquer. And so here we are, brothers and sisters, you and me at the end of all things on these white horses with Jesus ready to go out to conquer. You say, okay, it's us. That's great. How does that contribute to Jesus's glory? Well, nothing in and of ourselves, be assured, brothers and sisters, what brings great glory to Jesus by us being there is it's as if Jesus is declaring to the unbelieving nations, look at what a glorious king I am that I would include and do what I've done in the life of one such as this. There's nothing inherently great about this person or that saint or that saint, but I have done an incredible work in their lives and I have shared my glory with them so that as I come back to conquer, they are actually with me in all of my glory. And so we see the king's glory even in the army that gets to join him in this final conquering of his enemies. Now, John then transitions to verse 15 to show us some more ways that Jesus fulfills these Old Testament prophecies about a coming warrior king. And he gives us three of them, and we'll look at them very quickly in verse 15. Look there with me. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So first of all, we see that Jesus as judge is coming with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And this is a very clear reference back to Isaiah 49, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it for you. Isaiah 49, verses 1 and 2. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And so this one that Isaiah prophesied and promised would come, now Jesus is here with this sword. Remember, it's symbolism. Jesus doesn't actually have a sword coming out of his mouth. But this is now true of Jesus as he comes back again. Now, the second thing that John says here about Jesus as judge is that he will strike down the nations with his mouth. And again, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 11, verse 4 and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Now, if you know the Psalms really well, your mind is immediately going to the second Psalm, right? Doesn't this sound exactly like that? You shall break them, that is the nations, in the context of Psalm 2, with a rod of iron and smash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what Jesus will do. So what's the point? The point is that King Jesus will condemn his enemies by striking them down with his just words of accusation and condemnation. It's not that an actual sword comes out of his mouth and cuts them down. This is symbolism saying Jesus' words as the divine judge and king will cut them down. Even as someone cuts down their enemy with a sword, so will Jesus use his words of judgment. And then thirdly, And finally, John describes Jesus as judge as treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, which is again another reference and fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 63. Then lastly, to cap off this glorious vision we have of Christ, we see that Jesus is given a consummate title, a consummate name, and we see that in verse 16. On his robe, And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, what I don't want us to miss here is that John is clearly referencing back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 27, and Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. And in those contexts, Nebuchadnezzar is saying this about God, about Yahweh, And so what John is doing is he's taking those titles of king of kings and lord of lords. And he's saying those divine titles belong to Jesus as well. Because he is God. And as king, remember Nebuchadnezzar submitting himself to the Lord as king. He's been humbled. And so what John is saying is that Jesus will do the same with latter-day Babylon. With the city of man in the latter days, they will see Jesus, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and because of what he inflicts upon them, they will bow to him in submission, not worshiping him, but purely at the force of his sheer power and will. And so, brothers and sisters, as we look at this, behold your king. Behold his glory. And ask yourself the question, Why do I seek shelter? Why do I seek refuge in anyone else, in anything else? Why do I look to the things of this world? Why do I look for my own hand? Why do I trust in princes when I have such a divine warrior king like this who will right every wrong? He is glorious. And so worship him in his glory, meditate on his glory. And trust your king. Boast in your king. Remind yourself constantly of who he is and that you are waiting for him. Don't believe the lies of the world that he's not going to come back. Because if you believe that lie, then what happens? You don't live as if he's coming back. And so you'll be unfaithful and you'll be unloyal and you'll be like Prince John who eventually gets cut down when the true king returns wait for him because you will not be disappointed with his return so we've meditated on the glory of our king and let's look secondly and more quickly i promise you at the victory of our king we'll look at that in verses 17 through 21 and what we'll see first in verses 17 and 18 is the certainty of our king's victory that it is absolutely certain so let's look at that together first So the angel stands in the way of the sun and he's summoning all the birds, all the birds of prey, vultures, crows, and the like, come and feast upon the carcasses that are about to be laid before you. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, what's going on here is the reality that if there is no enemy left to bury the carcasses of those who've been defeated, then who buries the corpses? Nobody does. So then who cleans up? The birds of prey do. And so what's being announced here is that Jesus is about to so conquer you that no one will be left to bury the dead. It's the same concept that King David, when he defeated Goliath, said, I'm going to defeat you, and then the birds of prey are going to come down and they're going to devour you. And the Philistines ran off, and so there was no one to bury Goliath, and that's exactly what happened. And so, brothers and sisters, we're being shown how the enemies of God will be absolutely defeated. And I hope you also don't miss here that there's a play that John is doing on the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, you remember in the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus comes back. The bridegroom comes back to consummate the marriage with his bride, the church. We've seen all throughout the Old Testament again and again. We've been betrothed to God. We've been betrothed to God. Now Christ comes back. And oh, the blessings that those know who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we feast on this rich food together. And so John is saying there's a flip side to that. If you're not invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, if you don't believe in Jesus, don't think that you don't attend any feast." You attend the great supper of God, but guess what? You're not eating the feast. You are the feast. And you are devoured. You are eaten. And so there's this contrast. At the end of all things, you'll either participate in this feast or you will be feasted upon, which I encourage you to go look at Ezekiel 39, verses 17 through 20 later on. We don't have time to look at that, but this is a clear reference to that as well So what's being told to us is the victory is absolutely certain that Jesus is going to decimate his enemies. And then in verses 19, 20, and 21, we actually see this victory realized. So let's look at verse 19 first. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And so what we're seeing here is that the, the remaining enemies of the Lord are trying to do battle on him. You remember, we already saw that Babylon was destroyed at the, the end of chapter 17. There was that incredible plot twist where Babylon and the beast and the unbelieving kings of the nations come together to do battle against the Lord, and the Lord moves them to the, the beast and the kings to actually declare civil war on Babylon, and then she's destroyed. And we remember that that was a divine passive, the gathering. The Lord did this. And now we have a divine passive again. The Lord is having the remaining enemies, the beast and the unbelieving nations. And we'll see the dragon, Satan himself, defeated in chapter 20. But they're coming together. God has gathered them. And they're thinking, we're going to defeat Christ. We're going to defeat his army that's with him. And God has moved them to do this. Doesn't this, again, remind us of Psalm 2? Why do the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth, gather themselves to rebel against the Lord and against his anointed? We see this happen time and time again throughout history. That fallen man has always wanted to overthrow God and set himself up as God so that he can be a law unto himself and do what is right in his own eyes. And yet what we see happening here is the fullest expression of that reality and the final time that it will ever happen. And so here they are gathered against them, and then what happens? How does the battle go? Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Notice how quickly it's over. There's no struggle. There's no back and forth. There's no 11th hour victory. It's over as soon as it began. And so what's being communicated to us? You won't stand long as an enemy of God. In this life and certainly not at the end of all things. It is complete and utter futility. And so what do we see happen to the beast and to the false prophet? You remember what those two did back in chapter 13? The beast is is making claims of divinity and the false prophet is performing miracles to, to somehow validate those claims of divinity. And all those who receive the mark of the beast, they, they misled, they're misleading all these unbelievers. And so now they get what is their due. And as they are still alive, they're thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is exactly where the dragon Satan is going to be cast as well. In chapter 20. And so we see the enemies of Christ cut down and they experience the wrath of God consciously for all eternity for their rebellion against Christ, the divine warrior king. And so we're reminded yet again in the book, brothers and sisters, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so as we come to the end of this, we have to ask ourselves Where is our trust? Where is our trust? Is it in Christ? The king of kings and the Lord of lords? Or is our trust in things that we can see? Doesn't the kingdom, the city of man, seem so much stronger than the city of God? Here we are gathering. This seems ridiculous in the eyes of the world. And so sometimes even we as Christians can want to drum something up falsely potentially like what's happening this revival at Asbury. I don't really know. But it can seem so foolish in the eyes of the world, and so we can be tempted to give up on our king returning and living as we ought to because the force of the city of man seems so strong. And yet look at who our king is. Yes, he came the first time to shed his own blood. But I hope there's a category in your understanding of Jesus that he's going to come back and he is going to leave no opposition left standing. And if you don't have a category in your worship of Christ for that, then you're not really worshiping Christ. You're worshiping some figment of your imagination because what we are shown here is that he is glorious in conquering all of his enemies. He will triumph and crush the kingdom of men. And so it's so important that we know to whom do we belong. Do we belong to the city of man or to the city of God? And for unbelievers that are watching your life, can they tell the difference? Brothers and sisters, they ought to. Because he is coming again in all of his glory and he will win the victory. And here's the thing, we're not left to our own devices to do this. Do you know why he sovereignly ordained for this to even be preserved and now preached tonight that his spirit would take it and use it that we might grow in our fervor in light of this glorious vision we've beheld of Christ and his return, that we might with all the more vigor commit ourselves to him and living as we ought to and making the gospel known. And so, brothers and sisters, when he returns, by his grace, may he find us faithful. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful for your kindness towards us in your Son, that Christ's blood was shed for us, that we might be reconciled to you, and and we have fellowship with you. What a glorious vision here. And that you... Allow us to share in your glory, Jesus. We pray that that would capture our hearts and our minds. This imagery would capture our imaginations. And it would shape every decision that we make every day of our lives. And may you, by your spirit, use this word now to graciously cause us to be ready for your return. And may you come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. and We ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen.